Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, with Pastor John King. A comfort to us as my mom's passing earlier this week. Um, uh, we're going to fly down on Wednesday, and uh, her service will be on Thursday. Um, but for those of you that knew my mom, you know that she was uh, she loved this church. She loved all the folks here that she got to know. And uh, I can tell you she's in a better place. And I, I'll tell you right now, I'm at peace with it. Uh, you know, it could hit me later. It could get worse for me. That happens a lot of times. But um, I'm at peace with the fact that she is no longer suffering. And I am thankful that she is with the Lord. Uh, so in any event, I do appreciate uh, your prayers, your condolences. And I do believe that uh, that is what keeps me going. I will not be preaching next Sunday, however, but... Uh, we're going to continue our study today, and again, I thank each and every one of you for, for that. And just keep my family in prayers, if you would, yes. uh, please. Thank you. Uh, today we're going to complete uh, chapter 2 of Colossians, and uh, we're going to be covering verses 16 through 23 in chapter 2 of the book of Colossians. Um, Last week, while you're turning there, I just wanted to kind of re reiterate a little bit what we covered last week. We learned uh, last week of some important principles concerning how we're to view what's known as worldly philosophy, uh, the, uh, the wisdom of men. And we, Paul was presenting it to us in contrast to who we are in Christ. And Paul warned the church to beware of potential false teachers who would cheat you with man-made philosophy and empty deceit. You know, if all you have to draw from concerning wisdom and knowledge is the mere observation and the theories that come out of the basic principles of the world, then you're being ripped off. Because as Christians, we have access to the creator of the world, the creator of the universe, and all of God's riches and all of his wisdom. Um, you wind up, really, with a whole range of non-biblical ideas. Anything from simple folklore to highly intellectual and sophisticated worldviews that make no sense when you try to kind of divide them up. It, it kind of sounds like blah, 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 blah. So is what it ends up being. And the same goes for traditions of men. You know, with these false teachers. And in Paul's day, what it was happening in, in Colossae, the false teachers had presented this weird blend of all the, you know, the Greek philosophy that was around them, the Eastern mysticism that they had access to, non-biblical Jewish traditions, and uh, something referred to as early Gnosticism. In other words, they had a lot to choose from, and that's pretty familiar ground for us today, isn't it? We have a lot to choose from. A person would have a lot of things to pick at and to make choices about when it comes to your philosophy and where things are going and where things have been, where you're going after life and, and all the such as that. And the really, the good news that we learned from verse 5 in this study, if you've been following in chapter 2, is that Paul... Um, he commended them because they were standing fast. They were holding their ground against these false teachers. But he knew how dangerous things could get. And so he warned them very thoroughly. And you see this is a very thorough warning. We also last week started to touch on the matter of legalism. 
Legalism is those who promote, in this case, it was circumcision to a mostly Gentile or Greek and Roman church as a way towards deeper spiritual understanding. And, you know, this was another form of unnecessary bondage to religious ritual, something even in our day we have to be careful of. And instead, Paul presented a very valid religious ordinance, and that's water baptism, something we practice to this very day, which was and is a beautiful illustration of our having died with Christ, been buried with Christ, and then raised, died with him on the cross, and then being resurrected in a new eternal life. That's the whole baptism ceremony. And so this is, he's saying this in contrast to all this worldliness, this stuff that's being infiltrated into their church. The reality uh, that baptism gives us is having been raised from our former lives apart from God, where we were spiritually dead in our sinfulness, and all the charges that the Lord now, that God could hold against you and I because of our sin. They've been removed by faith in Christ. And so, uh, not only that, but they were nailed to the cross with our Lord and Savior. The price has been paid in full. So if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're here today, uh, maybe this, this message, you've been hearing it all along, and yet you haven't decided to commit your life to Jesus and, and, and give Him your trust and your faith in him, uh, then, you know, you're, you're not going to have the peace that comes with facing things like death and tragedy. You're not going to have the assurance of where you're going after you leave this world. You're going to continue to struggle. So the Lord not only takes away our sin and secures our eternal home in heaven, hallelujah, but it should fuel our desire now to tell others about him, to let other people know. And also our standing with Christ, our completeness in Christ, removes the confusion over worldly philosophy. You can put it to rest. It gives us the provision to fight the spiritual battles because of Jesus' triumph over principalities and powers. And so now we're free in Christ to love God and to love others, no matter what is going on around us, whether it's tragedy, whether it's a good time in your life. And so today, we're going to continue our study with three elements of legalism that Paul considered to be very dangerous. And if you're taking notes, these three dangerous influence in the life of a Christian starts with, first of all, religious traditionalism or ritualism, if you will. Religious traditionalism. The second dangerous influence was what we call mysticism. We're going to talk about that today. And then finally, this rule-keeping religion, or self-made religion. So three things today, religious traditionalism, mysticism, and self-made rules-keeping religion. Warren Wiersbe said it really well. He said that the flesh is weak when it comes to doing spiritual things. We know that from Matthew 26, 41. But it is very strong, the flesh is, when it comes to practicing religious rules and regulations. Somehow, adhering to the religious routine inflates the ego and makes a person content in his or her self-righteousness. So let's read our text, starting in verse 16 of chapter 2 of Colossians. Paul writes, 
So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, being vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Verse 20, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you now subject yourselves to regulations? Things like, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body. But they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Heavenly Father, we simply come before you once again, Lord. First of all, we want to give thanks that we have a place to gather in your name. Thank you, Lord, that we still have the freedom to do this in a public setting, to read your word and to study it and to proclaim your goodness. We thank you for that, Lord. And so, Father, I would ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can communicate your word that comes from you to each and every one of us so that it will continue to have an effect on our lives, that it will change our lives and cause our behavior and the way we live and the way we see all of life and eternity in a different way than the world that surrounds us. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in you. Thank you, Lord, for the great riches of wisdom and knowledge that all come from you. Now go before us, if you will, as we study your word together. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 So we start out with the first of the three points we're making today. The first is the fact that religious traditionalism, uh, some would call it legalism, and this whole influence would stem from the Jewish influence that I mentioned earlier, of all the different influences. You know, this hodgepodge of different belief systems. And so Paul, he, he's going to continue with the point that he's been saying all along. And the point of the matter is, when, when compared to what the world has to offer in its philosophy and everything else, you who are in Christ are complete. You don't need to add things to Christ. You don't need to add another book. You don't need to add another practice, anything that's outside of the Bible. You don't need to put it into your life to then become more spiritual or more complete because you are already complete in Christ. You know, it's, it's like a big wake-up call, isn't it? When you become a Christian, it's a big awakening, if you will, to who you really are. And it takes a long time, I've got to tell you. But we continue to, to kind of walk that path of sanctification, don't we? Amen. So he starts out, he starts out with this, this influence of ritualism. And he says, so, or, or some versions would say, therefore, you know, considering where you're at and considering the fact that you are already complete in Christ, therefore, or so, let no one judge you in food or in drink. Let no one judge you. Now that word, the way it's being used here is Maybe it sounds familiar. It's to pronounce judgment on matters of common life in an unfair manner. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever done that to others? 
I, we don't answer that question. And he says, let no one judge you in food or drink. Talking about diet. Something as simple and basic as a person's diet. Why is he talking about that? Well, remember, as we study through the Old Testament, we just finished the book of Leviticus. Hooray. We finished it on Wednesday nights. But in the Old Testament law, God restricted the diets of his chosen people, the Israelites. It wasn't for anybody else in the world. It was for God and his people. He spoke through Moses. Moses wrote it down. And he restricted their diets to forbid eating what was unclean. Right? And it was the priest's job to determine what was clean and unclean. And on the actual, with the way they ate their food. And it goes out into great detail. We don't have time for that, obviously. Leviticus 11, chapter 11, if you're ever interested. If you need something that might help you get to sleep tonight. Read Leviticus 11. But there were both physical and health, or physical and spiritual reasons why God did this. We, we do need to understand that. Um, back then, they were living in the desert, of course. They had, didn't have modern refrigeration or modern medicine, uh, but they had God himself, which is quite, a, quite something to, uh, to say. But there were, they would be susceptible to foodborne illnesses, shellfish from uh, bacteria from shellfish, trichinosis from pork, and all those other things. But notice also, when we consider why those dietary laws were put in place, God was setting the nation Israel apart for holiness. He was preparing the world through the nation Israel for the coming Messiah. But by the time of Jesus' coming, the ceremonial and dietary laws had become severely divisive, and they placed a very heavy burden on the people. God's plan of redemption was to, and, and did accomplish, to abolish the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. And the things that can separate people is like how they eat. Okay, even to this day, certain diets can really separate people. And it becomes a religious practice. But Jesus made it very plain and very clear in the Gospels that the need for dietary restrictions in order to have a right relationship with God was no longer required. Food is now neutral. And so this is the influence that's coming back into the church and why Paul's kind of scratching his head saying, why do you want to come back under this stuff? You know, you're free in Christ. You're complete in Him. We, uh, we're, we're aware of Peter having to learn this lesson. Kind of a, whenever I see a story about Peter, it's sort of, in a sense, it's kind of comical, right? Because he's, he's so much like we are in our ignorance and our... In our uh, bullheadedness. And you can say, well, you should speak for yourself, Pastor John, on that. Uh, but, you know, Acts 10, I mean, Peter, he was, he was like, he didn't want to hang out with Gentiles, what it amounts to. He was struggling with his flesh. He thought he was proud. He's still a proud Jew, even though he was new, uh, a new creation in Christ. And uh, Paul got on his case. But the Lord spoke to him in Acts 10. And you guys know the story. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but chill, uh, yeah, there it is right there, 13 through 15. And so he has this vision. He sees all these animals coming down in a sheet. And uh, they're all a bunch of unclean animals, right? And then a voice came to him and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. <laughs> but the Peter, Peter says, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And then, of course, the voice spoke to him again. And the second time, and he says, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And so he really wanted to teach, the Lord really wanted to teach Peter a lesson. And so he even did it the third time. Uh, 
But the, uh, the, 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 the fact of the matter is, is that these dietary laws and these di restrictions, uh, they, don't, they don't apply anymore. Now, you guys are all probably saying, yeah, we know that. <laughs> I mean, we're 2,000 years beyond that, right? We, we've progressed. But we still have some hang-ups. Uh, it may not be food or drink, but there's a lot of things in lifestyle that can give us hang-ups that makes us, make us think that we're being religious. Um, and there was also, notice he says, don't let anyone judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, there was a time when the Jewish religion was tied to the calendar. And again, from our study in the Old Testament, we know that there were many feasts and festivals, all, all prescribed by God himself. They had spring and fall festivals. You've heard of them, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, etc. They had new moons. Uh, they, they would have this tradition that uh, during a new moon, they would add special features to their, uh, their religious practices in the synagogue over the years. And they would do this on the first day of the month, the new moon. And then, of course, we know about Sabbaths. Sabbaths are, were, kept, were mandatory every sixth day. Uh, the Sabbath was required. It was a day that it was total rest. You couldn't do any work whatsoever. And we also know about the year of Jubilee. And so Paul, is, he's, trying to, he's trying to get the, the Jewish influence of the Old Testament because now they're under the New, Test, New Covenant. He wants to get that out of the church. And so he says, let no one judge you. And he gives the reason why. And really the reason why is because these religious, religious, excuse me, religious rituals and observances cannot make a person more complete in Christ. Why? In verse 17, they were all a shadow of things to come, but now the substance is of Christ. The substances of Christ. Jesus himself was, was there with them early, stood in, you know, God in the flesh. And the thing that which cast the shadow now had arrived. It was Jesus. And what he set in motion from that time forward, all those things were no longer needed. So with the coming of the Messiah, a new what, what we call a dispensation had begun. The law as a training aid or a schoolmaster was preparing God's people, in preparing God's people for his Messiah's arrival, as I said earlier, this law that had its purposes was over. John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now the question is always going to come up, people are always going to ask, we're going to ask ourselves, does this mean that the Old Testament law has no ministry has no benefit or no ministry to a New Testament Christian. And of course it doesn't mean that. Why? Because the law still reveals the holiness of God. The law still can be seen in Christ. I don't have a slide for this, but Luke 24, 27 says, in the beginning at Moses, you guys remember Jesus on the walk to Emmaus when he revealed himself. Uh, but he was, he was kind of veiled at that time. At the beginning, uh, he was, met these two guys, and, and he, what he did was he started to teach them from God's Word. And he started at the beginning, at Moses and all the prophets, and Jesus expounded to them all the scriptures of the things concerning what? Himself. All of it was about Jesus. The whole entire the Old Testament, the whole entire Bible, and again, those shadow, those, those things that they practiced was all about him, and he told them about that. 
And so we also know about the law. Not only does it show us a picture of Christ, does it still reveal the holiness of God, but we know that the law, Paul wrote to first, in Timothy, the law is good if a man uses it properly. You know, you apply it to yourself. Personal holiness. The law reveals sin and warns of the consequences of sin. But it has, notice this, it has no power to prevent sin or to redeem the sinner. And that's only because grace can do that. Only grace can make that happen. But the law has a place. I hope I haven't confused you. Now, real quickly, let no one judge you. Is it wrong to have a special diet for health or wellness reasons? Of course not. Many of us are either in a diet now or headed towards one. <laughs> but it is not a way to grow closer to God. And don't, do not make your diet a spiritual test for how you judge others. Because these diets and these fads are, they are popular. I mean, if you look at how, where advertising money goes, you'll see that they're very popular. But don't let it be uh, a spiritual test in how you judge others. Let no one judge you. Now, how about our modern, I'm just going to touch on this. How about our modern traditions? We were talking about diet. Now, what about holidays? How about our modern traditions like Halloween, Thanksgiving, or Christmas? Now, everybody likes Thanksgiving for the most part, except for those that try to say that it was some form of, form of discrimination. Some, anyway, but, uh, but Halloween and Christmas. Now, you, you know, Christians have these interesting debates about traditional holidays. And what I've found in my, my study, you can study it for yourself, but rarely are the debates about whether I should or should not participate uh, based on biblical reasoning, I'll say that. They may be based on conscience, and that's something that the Lord is that's between you and God. And the early European churches definitely appropriated pagan holidays. So now you know what I'm talking about. People will say, well, that, came, that Christmas tree came from you know, the, the Saturnalia. It was worship of devils and all that. But listen, they were having an outreach to their communities and to their society, the pagan society around them. And so they appropriated some of these things, and that's why we have a modern-day Christmas tree. But it's not, and it should never be, what people would think, some hidden pagan celebration. And so we need to be careful with that. We have our, our uh, trunk or treat every year out in the parking lot. Some people object to that. I understand. We respect that. But that's an outreach. And All Saints Day was originally a Christian holiday, if you will. So, you know, a lot of things have been hijacked by the world, but that doesn't stop us from doing what we think is appropriate for reaching out to others. So let's be careful that we don't judge, either on, judge one another on either side of that, whatever position you have. Amen? All right, so enough of that. Let's go on to our next uh, second point, and that is mysticism. Mysticism. Now, in a Christian sense, it is often described as a practice of experiential knowledge of God. And you think, well, what's wrong with that? And I would say it's a wonderful thing. But the problem can be is when somebody or some group tries to bring forward the idea of so-called hidden meanings in the Bible. And that can be very dangerous. It always sounds kind of odd when you, get in, when you hear about it. One example, though, of these, uh, you know, this mysticism is the long-standing belief by some that during the partaking of communion, uh, 
The elements of bread and wine become Jesus' literal body and blood. And, and some, you, most of you may know what I'm referring to there. And so that can be, in a Christian sense, a form of mysticism. Now Paul is saying in verse 18, again, you are complete in Christ. Do not be defrauded by mysticism. Verse 18, he says, let no one cheat you of your reward. Don't let anybody beguile you. To be cheated is to be disqualified. Now Paul, is, uh, here's, he's using, like he likes to, an athletic term that describes how an umpire or a referee can disqualify a contestant for breaking the rules. How? How can you be disqualified? Well, um, by allowing false teachers and influences to guide you and I in a direction that seeks to experience God apart from Christ. Because all of our experience with God comes through Christ and in Christ. Because we're already complete in Him. And how does that happen? By focusing on spiritual beings. By focusing on angels. By putting an undue focus on visions. At the expense of your relationship through Christ. And so he says, let no one cheat you of your reward. Now, speaking of your reward, this does not refer to your salvation. Because salvation is a gift, not a reward. Yet we know that our genuine service to the Lord puts us, you and I, in a position to receive heavenly crowns. Four main heavenly crowns that you will receive. Crowns of joy, righteousness, life, and glory. They're all there in the Word of God. And those are the crowns that we, they symbolize victory and reward. But it's not about your salvation. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 18, or 8, 3 verse 8, and then in, later in 15, or 13 through 15, he says this about your reward. He says, now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So he's not talking about your reward here on earth. He's talking about your heavenly rewards that we just described. Joy, righteousness, life, and glory. But he goes on, he says later in verse 13, the judgment that's going to be held. Not for your salvation, but for your work. It says here, as a Christian, each one's work will become clear in verse 13. For the day will declare it, the day of the Lord, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work, what sort it is. If anyone's work, which has been built on it, excuse me, it endures, he will receive a reward. So the things that we do in the flesh for the Lord, from a genuine heart of service and not for our own self-gratification or our own selfish motives or our own hidden agendas. They will put us in a position to receive rewards from the Lord. But in verse 15, but he says, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yeah, amen. Yet as through fire. Yeah, you'll arrive in heaven, you'll be smelling like smoke. Like you just had this huge barbecue in your backyard, or you burned that big wood pile. That's what you're going to be. And, you're, and you know, so you're, you're, it's like, I barely made it, Lord. And you're in heaven, you're like, hey. And some of us might say, well, that's good enough for me. And I, and I would just challenge you to say, I hope that's not good enough for you. I hope that you don't think that you just want to arrive as though by fire, by the skin of your teeth into heaven. I hope that each and every one of us has a desire 
to really genuinely serve the Lord in ways that put us in positions to receive his reward. But Paul's saying, if you follow these mystics, if you go off on these weird tangents, okay, you're, you're putting that kind of stuff at risk. Not your salvation necessarily, but how, you, how you're received by the Lord in heaven. And why, why does he say that? Well, notice as he goes on, first of all, mysticism, if you're taking notes, mysticism has a subtle exaltation of itself. It exalts itself when people get into these things. And notice he says, taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels. Taking delight, okay, having pleasure, not in humility, which humility is lowliness and humbleness of mind, not having pleasure in that. No, taking pleasure in being a phony. Taking pleasure in being a fake. Enjoying that. And okay, and also let's go worship some angels. And I, you know, a lot of us are like, well, I've never done that, not the worship of angels thing. But I, I would tell, I would submit to each and every one of us, we are, we are definitely guilty of false humility. And we need to really, you know, not see that, you know, these guys are, they're off their rocker. They're like, they're like, you know, having pleasure in it. They were fraudulent and deceptive. Kent Hughes wrote this. He, he talks about these false teachers. He said they used bogus humility, the way he words it. They delight in false humility and the worship of angels. You know, they love to act humble and say, oh, we are not good enough to go directly to God. So we begin humbly with one of the angels, which if we are in the correct spirit, will elevate our request through the hierarchy to God. You know, this was that early Gnosticism saying, oh, you know, we're, we're just, uh, f- you know, fake and, and uh, we're, we're, we're not good enough to approach God directly. When the Bible tells us otherwise, that through Christ, we have a personal relationship with Christ. We have a personal relationship with God. We have access to the throne of grace. Not in a proud sense. We're humble before the Lord because of that. But to say that, oh, I'm going to go through some intermediary, some angel, some, some spiritual being. And it's going to kind of go through the line, through the chain of command up to God. And that's how he's going to receive me. It's wrong. And Paul's like, don't go there. And it's actually a form of pride because what does it do? It rejects the work of Christ who died on the cross and rose from the dead so that you can approach him. So that you can approach the one through the one mediator, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to have help in the time of need. So whenever you push Jesus aside, you say you push aside everything he's done. And you say, I've got my own way. I'm going to do my own moves. I have my own form of religion. I have my own approach to God. Now, worship of angels, I'm not going to go far into that. We often read biblical accounts of encounters with angels. They're all throughout the Bible. And there's usually a very awestruck response when somebody sees an angel. I mean, you are going to be flat on your face. And usually the angel says, do not be afraid. (laughs) Do not be afraid. The apostle John wrote what happened when he worshipped an angel. He bowed down before an angel in heaven in Revelation 19.10. He says, and I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, see that you do not do that. And then the angel went on to say this, I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. 
worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So he put, this angel, rightly so, put, this, put John in, in, in back and said, go worship Jesus, not angels. Another thing, an interesting phrase in this passage, he's, it, you'll notice it says, intruding into those things which he has not seen. Now this is when somebody starts to tell you a story. They start to, to falsely claim that they've had special visions. And they have great detail in those visions. But it's all for show. It's all for them to, for you to think that they are more spiritual. Now you might want to say, well, wait a minute. Don't believers have dreams and visions? Absolutely. Absolutely. Believers have dreams and visions. But Paul was describing methods used by mystics to draw people away from Christ and the scriptures. These practices have been used by men like Joseph Smith, Jim Jones, Sun Young Moon, and others. Look, pick a tyrant, pick a cult leader, pick a so-called prophet, and you'll find that they have all claimed to have had a special vision or revelation from God. Now, 1 John 2.18, he tells us very clearly and plainly. He says, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. So we're to watch. We're to test the spirits. We're to be very careful. And he goes on. He says, uh, not only were they putting on a show, but he's talking about these private revelations that result in fleshly pride. Vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind is what the text says. In other words, an inflated ego. The sense of being puffed up with intellectual pride. A fleshly mind is a mind that's dominated by the flesh. The Christian mind should be dominated by what? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. The point is this, says one writer. This thing, is, it's known as spiritism, which is another name for mysticism. Focuses attention upon the spiritual experience, the angels, the spirits, and the visions, not on God's appointed way to approach Him, which is Christ. A person's mind and thoughts are centered more on the spirits or the spiritual experience than on Christ. Christ is relegated to a lower position in the person's life than the spirits or those visions that they claim to see. The person seeks to have visions of the spirits more than he seeks to know Christ. William Barclay wrote, he said, No one will deny the visions of the mystics, but there is always a danger when a man begins to think that he has attained a height of holiness which enables him to see what common men, as he calls them, cannot see. The danger is that men will often see not what God sends them, but what they want to see. Yeah, we can fool ourselves, can't we? And so Paul's saying, don't go there. In verse 19, he describes what's happened. They're not holding fast to the head who is Jesus Christ. They're not holding fast. They're not faithfully keeping. 
Now, the head is used many ways with a capital H. It's a metaphor. It's used in the Bible in several ways of the authority and direction of God in relation to Jesus, in relation to Christ. You could see relation, uh, authority or direction of God as one example in relation to Christ or of Christ in relation to people, men who believe, or of a husband in relation to the wife. That word head is used. And then here, what we're talking about is Christ in relation to the church, because he's talking to the church as a whole. By not acknowledging Jesus as the only Savior of mankind, they are cut off from a healthy growth in him, becoming weak and spiritually undernourished. You know, he, he is the vine. We are, we're the branch, and you need to be connected to the vine who is Christ. Because what happens is you become very weak and undernourished. And that's why he describes from all the body nourished and knit together by the joints and ligaments. This is the church. To be supplied and knit together. Now David Guzik says it this way. He says, when these strange mystical movements arise in the church, and many of you may have seen them, they don't appeal to the whole body, but only a few elite Christians. Have you noticed that? And this is not the cause under the head Jesus, because he wants all the body to grow together. So whenever you run into somebody who thinks or acts like they're spiritually, you know, they've got some deep understanding that no, most people don't have, beware. Beware of the mystics. Although it is true, says one writer, that Christians experience God, obviously, Christian mysticism tends to elevate experiential knowledge and revel in the mysterious, focusing on mysticism for spiritual growth. We, we already understood, you know, we, we, we've already stated that. Biblical Christianity focuses on knowing God through His Word and communion with the Holy Spirit through prayer. So we talk about Word, we talk about prayer, and we talk about fellowship. But mysticism tends to kind of be individual, doesn't it? it? Kind of draws somebody off on their own journey, their own experience. Uh, I'm going to go find Jesus on my own, right? That famous song. And what it really does when you come out of community, when you take yourself out of the Christian community, uh, you, you either do one of two things, really. You kind of just backslide. You, deny, you denounce your faiths in a sense. You're less connected. Or you kind of go off the rails and you get kind of strange in your own way and you have no use for the church. Now, I do, I do understand that there are struggles. I do understand that people move around a lot and it can be hard to get plugged into a church. But we need to be connected together. It's not a solo exercise. And it's also, but it's also, here's another thing that we need to be recognized because it, this was a church. It's also possible that a local church can be not draw from the head. It can, it can stop learning and being connected to Jesus and to the nourishment of the spiritual bodies. Because these false teachers came into the church and they wanted to introduce their teachings. Uh, and if they succeeded, they would have caused the spiritual nourishment of that particular church or those churches to decrease instead of increase. You see, unless the members of a local church you and I, all of us, unless you abide in Christ personally and you yield to the Spirit and obey the Word, you cannot experience the life of the head, Jesus Christ. 
I know from my own experience that after 20 years of claiming to be a Christian, the only way I ever, I got to the point where I only claimed to be a Christian when I filled out my uh, annual uh, notification, you know, in case you die in the military, or you know what I'm talking about, who you tell, and what's your religion. I, I don't even think they're allowed to ask that anymore. And I would write down, I go, hmm, oh, I'm Christian, and keep on going. And that's what happens as you fall away and, you, and you, you become more and more distant from the Lord. You fall away from the fellowship. Now church is not anything near perfect. Um, and if you come to a church seeking a perfect church, uh, just by the fact that if, you, know, you walking in makes it imperfect. Uh, we're, we're a house full here at Calvary Chapel, Elizabeth City. You know, we're just a bunch of beggars, as, as one man put it. We're all standing in the same line, needing the same bread of life. Here at this church, we want you to be fed with God's Word. We want Spirit-led worship and prayer. And the reason why is so that you can draw on the spiritual resources in Christ that are only found in Jesus. Some things to remember when it comes to our Christian experience, because yes, it is an experience. First of all, if you're taking notes, we do not, or we, excuse me, we do have what might be considered mystical experiences. We do. I mean, you can talk about how you were impacted and convicted by the Holy Spirit prior to salvation and the things the Lord did with you. That's an experience with God. That's a mystical experience that you can describe it, but you can't necessarily explain it. Being indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Having the power, the wisdom, the faith, the spiritual discernment in your walk. And you turn over to God. And then, of course, demonstrating things like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's how you know. That's your experience with God. Being empowered and equipped to understand truth and then to live it out. And sometimes God does reveal himself in dreams and visions. Yes, but we must, we must be aware of the nature of our emotions and the spiritual impressions. In other words, test the spirits. 1 John 4.1 Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So our Christian experience we have them, we want to test them, and it also must line up with the Word of God. God does not contradict himself. He's not the author. He wrote this book. He is not the author of confusion. Now, you know, you say, well, I still, I want to, I want to go deeper with the Lord. I want to understand. Yes, of course we all do. But we can do that by attending to the things that he has revealed to us. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a wonderful passage. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. He's given us plenty of information. It's found in his word. Finally, uh, as we close, we're going to go into this last section in verses 20 through 23. Talk about rule-keeping religion. He's going to address, Paul's going to address this thing about self-made religious practices, which disregard the work of Christ. I, I mentioned a little bit about that earlier. Uh, 
He says, therefore, uh, you are complete in Christ and do not be subject to self-made religion. He says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why are you coming back into putting yourself under these self-made rules and regulations? We've covered, we covered these basic principles before, but basically they're the elemental forces. These are the things, again, that you can see, you can observe through science and nature and, and, and such, but you know, they're, they're not the whole story because God the Creator has an entire uh, reality for us. And so if you make all your decisions based on simply what you can see or what we might call common sense, uh, you're making, making it up. And typically people like to create their own religion. You see that in the movements that are taking place today. The religion of environment, the religion of uh, uh, sexual freedom and ambiguity and the whole, the whole mess. But Paul, he asked the question, he goes, why as though living in a world do you subject yourself to these regu regulations? Now that you're a Christian, your manner of living, the morals, the character, they're no longer governed by the world. You're now a, you're, you're, you're a resident alien, if you would. You, talk, you want some aliens? We're all aliens, okay? Have you seen aliens? Look at each other. You're resident aliens. You're pilgrims. He says, do not subject yourselves to regulations. And he gives an example in verse 21. This is an example of self-made religion. Do not touch. Do not taste. Do not handle. Now, this is, uh, this is a thing, a word. I'm going to give you a word here. It's called asceticism. You guys have heard that. We talked about mysticism. What is asceticism? And it's a voluntary abstention from the satisfaction of bodily and social needs, including food, drink, sexual activity, sleep, clothes, wealth, and social interaction. There's a definition for you. What it really means, it's a, it comes from a Greek word meaning exercise or training or practice. Ascetics were famous, especially in the early church days, uh, of renouncing worldly pleasures that distract from spiritual growth and enlightenment to live out a life of abstinence, austerity, and extreme self-denial. You see it in Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Islam, and you can even see it in Christianity. Now Paul was a former Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a former Hebrew, and excuse me, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and he was well acquainted with all the Hebrew law and customs. And so he knew about this sort of asceticism from a Jew Judaic principle. But here's the thing we need to remember. Rule-keeping religion. When you set up a religion based on these kind of self-made rules, it finds its authority in the commandments of men, not in God. You know, it's men making up the rules. And he says in verse 22, these things, they all concern things which perish with the using. And, and he's, he's like, you know, this involves perishable things like food and drink. God gave us those things to enjoy and to be thankful for. Romans 14, 14, Paul said, I know and I am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So the freedom of your conscience to make a decision whether you eat certain things or not. But they have nothing to do with your spiritual um, growth or you're bringing you closer to God. And so they bring in these very clever 
teachings, this, these asceticism, and you, you, know, you, hear, you hear about the extreme physical abuse that they would do. He says in verse 23, uh, rule-keeping religion is of no value against fleshly indulgence. They look good on the outside. He says they indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, but they have a reputation. It's empty conceit. So the false teaching might have sounded convincing, but ultimately it was futile because it did not address the root of the problem. And that's our sin nature. And in Christ, the worldly powers of sin have been defeated. We've been raised to a new life. And therefore, no need for man-made rules. At the very end, he talks about false humility. Again, we talked about that earlier. And the neglect of the body. Now, historically, uh, it may come to mind, asceticism is involved, is involved with fasting, exposing a person to heat or cold, sleep deprivation. We already have enough of that on our own, right? Flagellation and even self-mutilization. Asceticism is usually associated with monks, priests, and yogis. But they're of no value. They're absolutely no value for the indulgence of the flesh. He <laughs> said yogi, that's right. I <laughs> know. No, we're getting to the end of this message, for sure. Uh, <laughs> in any event, Paul taught us that our bodies are to be used as instruments of righteousness, and they're not to be treated brutally is the point. As we conclude, self-imposed religion is man reaching to God, writes David Guzik, trying to justify himself by keeping a list of rules. Christianity is God reaching down to man in love through Christ. So what are we to know? First of all, that you're complete in Christ. Do not be subject to ritualism. Second of all, you're complete in Christ. Do not be defrauded by mysticism. And thirdly, you are complete in Christ. Do not be subject to man-made religion. Amen? Amen? Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time today. We pray, Lord God, that the things that we've taken from your word today will bear fruit in our lives and give us a clearer understanding of who we are. It's just another reminder, Lord, that we are secure in you, that we are complete in you, and that the work that you want to do through us is simple. It's a simple approach. It's by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So go before us, Lord. Go before us this week in all the things that we have promised and planned. Lord, give us strength for the things that you have for us. We pray this now in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, If you're able, please stand. Holiness, holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. Holiness, holiness is what you want from me. Faithfulness.
Faithfulness, faithfulness is what I long for. Faithfulness is what I need. Faithfulness, faithfulness is what you want for me. So take my heart, to take my heart and form it. Take my mind, transform it. Take my will, conform it to yours, to yours, oh Lord. Righteousness, righteousness, righteousness is what I long for. Righteousness is what I need. Righteousness, righteousness is what you want from me. So take my heart, so take my heart and form it. Take my mind, transform it. Take my will, conform it to yours, to yours, oh Lord. To yours, to yours, to yours, oh Lord. Take my heart, so take my heart and form it. Take my mind. Transform it, take my will, conform it to yours, to yours, oh Lord, to yours, to yours, to yours, oh Lord, to yours, to yours, to yours, oh Lord, to yours. The Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May he be gracious unto you and give you peace. God bless. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.